Uh, typically, we would uh, have the scripture reading first, and then we would go into the sermon afterwards. But I'm actually going to introduce the message this morning first, uh, say a few things, and then we're going to get to the scripture reading. You'll understand why momentarily. We have been talking, of course, about King David. We've been looking at his life as it's recorded in Scripture. This is a king who, who lived some 3,000 years ago and to whom God said, I'm going to make you a kingdom that is going to last forever. Your descendants will sit on that throne forever. He, he made this promise way back in 2 Samuel 7, which was at the height of David's success, at the height of his power, and, and also at the height of kind of his uh, good character. David was making good decisions David was showing his strength and his compassion. He was showing that he was uh, loyal to the Lord and loyal to God's people. And uh, he was loved, beloved by the people uh, of Israel because he was such a great king. He's the kind of king that you and I would totally uh, want if we were living in uh, a monarchy, which, I mean, I guess we technically are. We're a constitutional monarchy. Let me explain that to you for a minute. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to go there. Um, <clears throat> Since that time, though, things have kind of entered a downward spiral for King David. And things have gotten worse and worse and worse. We, we probably saw his, the, the bottom of his, uh, of his sinful sort of spiral the last two weeks where we looked at his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of his good friend Uriah. And in response to that, God told David that there was going to be consequences for his sin. He said this in 2 Samuel 12. This is beginning at verse 10. Listen to this. He says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now the next five chapters, so chapter 2 Samuel 13, all the way up through 2 Samuel 18, kind of bears this out. This prophecy starts to, to come true in the life of King David. Now, we're not reading all of that, so I've got to give you a bit of background. That's why we're going to read our scripture passage in just a moment. It all starts with David's oldest son, Amnon. <clears throat> Amnon was infatuated with his half-sister, who was from one of David's other wives, named Tamar. And he became so obsessed with her and so inflamed with lust for her that he actually rapes her at, at one point. And it's a terrible, terrible story. Now, Absalom is Tamar's full sister, Absalom's or Amnon's half-brother. And he is utterly furious over what Amnon has done. But it looks like King David doesn't actually do anything about that situation. So for two years... Absalom just seethes with hatred toward his brother to the point where he has him killed. 
Now, David, as I said, left this sin, it seems, unpunished. Scholars speculate that it was because Amnon was his firstborn child, his firstborn son, and so he probably favored him. In any case, Absalom, after this happens, he has to flee Jerusalem, and he goes to another place, and he spends three years basically in exile. And we read that David longed to go to his son, but he doesn't do it. He desires to go see his son, who he, who he is, who, whose relationship with him is absolutely broken, but he doesn't go. Finally, Joab, that is David's nephew and the commander of David's armies, he intervenes with David and he says, look, you've got to bring Absalom back. And, and he says, fine, Absalom can come back, but, but I will not see him. So Absalom comes back, but he spends two years kind of in exile in Jerusalem. His father refuses to see him. He gets married, he has children, he's doing life, but he is not allowed to see his father at all. And then finally, Joab intervenes one more time, and he says, look, you've got you to reconcile somehow with your son Absalom. This isn't good. You've got to let him come see you. And so finally, David relents, and he says, fine, Absalom can come see me. Absalom comes, sees him, and it looks like they reconcile, and everything seems to be okay. But... Looks can be deceiving. And Absalom absolutely hates his father. He's built up this grudge against him because David has not been a very good father uh, to Absalom, obviously, and he can't stand him. He seethes with hatred toward his dad. It just so happens that Absalom is also kind of an arrogant guy. You know, he was super-duper handsome. Super duper handsome. Any of you guys remember Fabio? <laughs> Those who chuckled do. Fabio was, he was kind of a 90s icon, okay? He's an Italian dude with long flowing blonde hair, big muscles, you know, all that stuff. Really handsome with the, the I think he had dark hazel eyes or whatever. I don't know. Anyhow, the guy was a hunk. I picture Fabio when I think of Absalom. Absalom had this long flowing hair, which, by the way, ancient people said uh, was a sign of virility. Therefore, Absalom wasn't just a hunk, he was also a stud. This is the guy, okay, all the teenage girls in Israel, they all had a poster of Absalom up in their, be in their bedroom because he was so handsome. And he was extremely arrogant. And he wanted David's throne. And so he decided to take it. You remember when we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba? David just basically took Bathsheba. Well, Absalom is now doing that with his throne. And so Absalom devises this whole complicated way of usurping his father, and it works. And so David actually has to flee his own city, the city of Jerusalem. He has to take all his mighty men again. They all have to pack up their families or leave their families and rush off in, 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 into the desert with David one more time. And Absalom takes over the city of Jerusalem to show that he's the man in charge. He actually goes to the palace. He goes to his father's concubines. He takes them up to the roof of the house, and he has sex with them in front of all the city to see. These are your spiritual ancestors. And then he gathers his army up together, and out he goes to attack David and finally eliminate him and complete his coup. And that's where we pick up the story. I'm going to read to you from 2 Samuel 18. 
beginning at verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the man, to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people than that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing that... For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Job said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the, in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearer, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And now we're going to skip down to verse 31, where a, uh, a messenger has come to tell David the results of the battle. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. Did that strike you just a moment ago when I said, this is the word of the Lord? I think sometimes, if you've grown up in church at least, uh, 
the shockingness of some of the passages of Scripture have lost their shock value, I guess, with us. So when the minister says, this is the word of the Lord, we just say, thanks be to God, let's carry on. Meanwhile, if you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, and you look at me read this story, and you say to yourself, this is the Bible? This is what you people believe? What on earth are we supposed to do with that? I mean, this is not just a tragic story, right? This is an ugly story. This is a terrible story. Why on earth would this be in the Bible, which we call, if you're, a, if you're a, an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, you call this book the Word of the Lord. Why on earth would it be in here? There's a place in Timothy where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, or in other translations, is profitable. How is this passage useful, profitable? Well, there's some hard lessons in this story, and they're worth attending to if we have the ears, the ears, sorry, to hear, and the minds to engage and to listen. I hope that you will have your ears open and your hearts open to hear the story or hear the lessons of the story. You know, one of them is, is, is obvious right off the bat, and it's this. Even if, if you're a Christian, even if you've been forgiven for your sin, you will face consequences for your sin. Even if you've been forgiven for your sin, you will face consequences for your sin. Here's Nathan prior to this event, uh, the sin of David and Bathsheba. Nathan said to David, he says, you are forgiven. He says, actually, your sin has been taken away from you. And yet, he tells David, you're going to face consequences for the sins that you've, you've committed. There's going to be violence in your family. There's going to be betrayal in your family. It's going to plague your family for many, many, many years to come. And that, what's interesting is, is that's a prophecy of consequences that were borne out by David's own behavior. David took more wives than one. That was something he was not supposed to do, but he did it anyway. David favored, he played favorites with his children. Everybody knows that if you play favorites with your children, your kids will know who the favorite is. Even if you don't play favorites, your kids think there's a favorite. But if there really is a favorite, you kids will know, and that will cause all kinds of trouble in your, in, in your marriage and in your family life. And David was also a, a disengaged, passive father. He didn't discipline, as far as we know, he didn't discipline Amnon when he should have. He would not engage Absalom face to face, even when he wanted to. He was stubborn and he refused to. And, and Absalom was the one who was trying to figure a way to go see his father. So, so in a sense, David is merely reaping what he sowed. If you sow this kind of life, you can expect to reap this kind of life. And so one of the lessons for parents here is very simple, and it's this. Learn from David. <laughs> Listen, David cared about his kids. Maybe he cared about his kids to a fault, in fact. But certainly, David did not guard his integrity. And if you do not, moms and dads, if you do not guard your integrity, 
it can make you quite powerless to actually do the things you need to do to raise up your kid. If you are a, 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 a trying to tell your kids, simply do as I say, not as I do, and expect that that's going to work as a parenting uh, um, uh, strategy, you're going to be woefully disappointed. If you're not guarding your heart, if you're not uh, seeking to, to, to honor God visibly and openly in the way you live your life, you can expect that your child is going to model themselves after you, and that's not the direction you want to go. I, I remember I was a, a young youth pastor just entering ministry. I was probably 27 years old or something like that, and one of the kids in my youth group at my church had got caught stealing from a store. And Back then, this is 20 years ago, back then, you know, what the police did typically is they threw you in the back of the cruiser, they scared the daylights out of you, and then they drove you to your parents' home, and they told your parents what you did, and let your parents deal with it. So, I get a phone call from the parents, because that's what the police did, said, can you come over and help us sort this out with our kids? Sure, no problem. Our, what happened? Well, our kids stole from the store, and we think that he's got a problem with stealing, and et cetera, et cetera. Can you come and talk to him? Sure, I can come and talk to him. And so I walk into the house, and I sit down in the living room, and they had this entertainment unit on the wall, and I noticed, this is, now you got to remember, this is 20 years ago, and I saw this entertainment unit on the wall, and there was a, what's called a direct TV box sitting on top of the unit. Now, direct TV was an American satellite provider that was not available in Canada. It was not legal to have it in Canada, but you could buy it in Canada, you could set it up, and you could steal American satellite feeds and watch all kinds of television, and that's what they had in their house. And so here I am, sitting beside the father who's telling me I'm really worried about my kid who's stealing, and I'm looking up at him stealing satellite television. Our sin, moms and dads, your sin, it has ripples effects. Now, you're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes, and you're going to fail your kids, and that means you've got to go to them and, and, and do what the opposite of what David did was at the first opportunity when you realize that you have sinned against your child, you need to be the first to go to your child and repent and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. doesn't matter if they're three and they don't have a clue what you're talking about or if they're 33. That's the first lesson. Now, understand something. What David is experiencing here is not punishment. I know this is hard for us because we saw it last time with uh, David and um, the loss of his child as well as a consequence of his sin. This is very, very hard for us to understand. We think that David is being punished for his sin here, but that's not what's happening. He's experiencing consequences, but it's not punishment. Punishment, listen, punishment is a punitive act that makes the offender repay the debt to the offended. It's a punitive act meant to get the, the offender to repay what they did to the offended. Now, consequences can be punishment, but that's not what's happening here. The emphasis in, in punishment is on the rights or the needs of the person being offended. What's happening here is discipline. What David is experiencing in these consequences is not punishment, but dis discipline, because discipline is a corrective action meant to change the negative behavior of the offender. 
It's a corrective action meant to change the, the negative behavior of the offender. So you have a child who's missing curfew, and you say, well, uh, we're going we're to keep you home because you can't, you can't, uh, you can't uh, honor the timelines that we have set for you in your, in your outing. And the kid says, oh, why do you have to punish me? I've learned my lesson. And the parent says, no, it's not a punishment. It's a consequence. I'm disciplining you. See, David here is actually being the kind of father, or sorry, not David, God is being the kind of father to David that David was not being to his own sons. We, we talked about in the time of confession. Listen to what it said. If you weren't listening, hear, hear it again. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son, wait for it, as a father, the son he delights in. And if you're a kid and you're thinking about the times you've been disciplined or punished, you think to yourself, it sure doesn't feel like I'm being delighted in when I'm being punished. But you've got to understand when it actually is happening, when you're being corrected by your parents. Did you know, kids, you're not, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's just a lot easier to not bother disciplining them. Like if your mom and dad are actually concerned about themselves, their comfort, their time, you know, their time, use of their time, this kind of stuff, it would be easier for them to just say, ah, whatever, it's not a big deal. I want to go back to watch my Netflix or I want to watch my TV show. And I don't want my kid mad at me because then it gives me a knot in my stomach and I'm all worried about them, and I stay up at night, better to just leave it alone. When your parents discipline you, it costs them something. You think it's all about you. And it's not. How's that for your first discussion of sermon breakout <laughs> in a few minutes? Have fun with that, Ryan. Anyway, um... It's correction. What David was experiencing was correction. And actually, we see this correction beginning to bear fruit in this story. It's borne out in this story. It's illustrated, in fact, in the cry that David makes at the end of this passage. He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, why would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There's three things I want you to see in this cry. It's, first of all, it's a cry of loss. In verse 5, remember, David says to his men, he says, whatever, uh, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now, Absalom is a rebel. He is a sexual deviant. He has mustered an army and turned the people of Israel against their rightful king, the king that God had put in place on this throne. And he does all this stuff, and David says, deal gently with the young man. Justice demands death. That's what Absalom deserved. And Brothers and sisters, the truth is, is that that's really, in our relationship with God, that's what, what each and every one of us deserves. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. It's a Western. And in that movie, there's a young gunslinger who finally kills somebody. It's the first person he ever killed, and he's freaked out about it, and he's trying to kind of justify it himself, and he says, yeah, well, he had it coming, and, and 
Clint Eastwood in that Clint Eastwoody way, gravelly voice. He says, we all got it coming, kid. That's the truth about the human race. We all got it coming. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her wonderful book, Confronting Christianity, she writes this. It has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. But here's the thing. David knows this about himself. His sin with Bathsheba, when Nathan opens his eyes to what he's done and shows him just how awful it is, he understands that while justice demands death because of what he knows about himself, he wants his, to order his men to deal mercifully. Why? Because he loves his son. Now this is something you really only grasp well if you're a parent. When you love your child, there is this crazy willingness to put up with so much garbage. Because that bond you have with that child, just it overwhelms the things that that child may have done to you. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, our children may plunge into the worst of sins, but they are our children still. They may scoff at our God. They may tear our hearts to pieces with their wickedness. We cannot take complacency in them, but at the same time, we cannot unchild them nor erase their image from our hearts. Do you, what a beautiful picture that is, eh? Every parent has, has the image of their child imprinted on their hearts. Kids, when you flip out and you say in a moment of foolish outrage, I hate you, you have no idea. You think you've got a pea shooter in your hands and you just fired off a bazooka. He loved his son. He was hurt so deeply. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. Now, if that's how it is, between a human father and his human son, both of them sinners, what must it be like for God to cry out, my Paul, my son, my daughter when we sin. David's cry was a cry of loss, but it, it was also, more than that, it was a cry of regret. David, like I said, he wants them to go, he wants his men to go easy on Absalom, right? Deal gently with them. They must have been utterly shocked to hear that, go gentle on him. What are you talking about? You gotta smoke this guy. Not only is he a disrespectful son, but he's a rebel against the land. And 
it must have freaked them out, even though they knew that David was a, was a, was a failure as a father. They must have wanted to just, to just make this go away as soon as possible. There they were, away from their family, away from their, their lives at home, and, and living this militaristic life again. But you see, David knows that he has failed as a father. For five years, he had basically no relationship with Absalom. Three years, Absalom's on the run. Two years, he refuses to see his son. And now he discovers that his son is dead. And Absalom is making a cry of regret because he realizes now it's too late. All the what-ifs start popping up in his head. What if, what if I had dealt with Amnon properly? What if I had been so less, less harsh with Absalom and, and reached out and talked to him? What if I had not neglected him I, I, the way I had? What if, what if, what if, what if, I, what if? Now, if you're my age, you really resonate with this, okay? Because you see, I'm now at the age where my kids are pretty much grown. And when you get to that age, when your kids are pretty much grown, what you start to do is realize that, you know, your, your, your direct influence on them, your ability to directly shape their character has been weakened. It doesn't mean you have no influence at all anymore, but it does mean that, that much of who they are has now been shaped over those very, very important formative years, as we call them, right? And, and if you're like me, you, you start to look at that and you start to regret things. And I have regrets. I've talk, talked about it before. I regret... I regret that I was as angry as I would, I would get as angry as I would get. I was an angry man for a number of years, and I would lash out at my kids. Not, not like, I wasn't like physically abusive, but I, I would say very cutting words, and I would, I would raise my voice, and I would use fear to, to kind of try to adjust their behavior. And, and meanwhile, the Bible says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, and I regret that. I regret my selfishness. I regret that, that there were times when I, I should have been spending time with children and I, and I didn't spend the time with them that I should have. And, I, and like I said, I've used hurtful words and I, I was gone too much, especially when they were younger. And then my line of work, you know, you're gone a lot. And I just did it. And I have regrets and I can't take that back. That time has passed, just like with David, when he sees that his son is dead, he has all these what-ifs in his head, and many of you have all these what-ifs in your head. You look back on the past and your life, and you think to yourself, if I had only done it different, if I had only known, if I had only listened to myself, as I was telling myself, don't do that, and I did it anyway, or do that, and I went, eh, I don't feel like it. You know, if you're a Christian, you're going to have regrets, hey? It's very interesting if you think about it. There's a lot of people who work really, really hard at saying they have no regrets. I regret nothing. I'm watching Cobra Kai right now. And uh, what's that kid's name? I don't really care about their names much, so I don't really think about that. Anyhow, one character, he goes to find his father, his true, real father. And he finally meets him, and he doesn't tell him that, that, that he is his father. And uh, this man talks about his past relationship with this woman who nearly ruined his life, but he was smart, and he took off, and he, he left, and, and he looks at this, his son, doesn't know it's his son, he looks him in the eye, and he says, and I regret nothing. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to have regrets because you're going to be aware of your sin. What do you do with that? Stay tuned. David had a deeper regret than just his own failures as a father. He also had the regret that comes from seeing his son die without repentance. See, the story is is that Absalom sees David's men. He comes across them in the midst of the battle. He freaks out. He turns on his mule and he takes off. And maybe he's looking back at one point and that's when he gets hit by the oak tree. But anyhow, his head gets caught in an oak tree. And the text says that he is suspended between heaven and earth. It's a haunting image. He's a nowhere man. Maybe he was caught by his hair. That's what tradition says, is that his beautiful flowing hair got caught up in the branches. And there he was hanging, and Joab's men come, a, come across him, and eventually Joab and his men, they meet out justice. Justice is served, but no mercy is shown. And David's regret is that his son... <laughs> His son did not have time to repent. You see, all of Absalom's death, friends, is actually it's a picture of what you and I deserve. Because the curse of sin is death. And David is weeping and he's crying out in agony at the prospect of his son dying without faith because he was a covenant breaker who had chosen to rebel against the rightful king, the anointed king that God had put over his people and he, he was going to usurp him. Lastly, David's cry is a cry of longing. He wanted to do something about it. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. What haunting words. See, David understands his sin has led to this. Yes, Absalom is responsible for his own actions, but he understands that his sin has led to this moment and he is absolutely engulfed by his guilt. Now, when you put together your regret of having parented poorly and you put together your regret of having seeing your child wander away from the faith and then you put together uh, their tragic ending and you stand in, in front of all that, facing all of that, some of you know what that's like. You've done some, something awful in your life and you carry this, this weight of guilt upon you that if, if you allow yourself to think about it, what you did, if you give yourself a chance to, to sort of m- meditate on that past, the, 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 the waves of guilt, they become so strong and they come down upon you and they push so heavily upon, heavily upon you, you think that you are going to be crushed, literally crushed by it. You can't even breathe. The guilt is so heavy. And so what do you want to do? You want to get rid of it. I need to get rid of this guilt. I should pay for it. I deserve to be beaten or I deserve to be uh, uh, treated badly or I deserve whatever whatever punishment I experience. I deserve that because somehow I'm trying to to get that guilt off my shoulders. I'm trying to pay pay down the debt. I'm trying to, to, to put it behind me. And you might even be willing to say, I'll take my own life. Like David said, I I wish I could trade my life for, for my son's life because living with the guilt is too much. But David had no answer to his longing. 
And the lesson of the story is that God calls you and me to take our longing and to take that grief to, to, to him because he has done something about it. Go back to the, to, the, to the Absalom situation once again. See, Absalom, he is what you call an anti-type of Christ. Absalom, son of a king, dies on a tree, got no mercy, buried in a pit and covered in stones. He got what we deserve. But centuries later comes another son of a king who died on a tree, who got no mercy, whose tomb was covered in stone, but he was different from this Absalom because he never turned from his father. He obeyed him completely. And when he cried out, he cried out in faithfulness, even at the end. And through his death, you and I are saved. Listen to what Galatians 3 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember I said the curse of the law is, is death. The curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Absalom was cursed as he hung on that tree and got the death he deserved. And Jesus Christ was cursed as centuries later he hung on that tree getting what we deserved. And so David's longing is fulfilled by another. Frederick Buechner, a great Bible writer, he put it this way, when David cried, would that I had died instead of you, he meant it. If he, had, if he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boy's betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he could have given his own life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that. And as later history would prove, it takes a God. It takes a God. Friends, this, this is what can change us, okay? There's lessons in this passage, as I said at the very beginning. There's lots of lessons in this passage, right? But, you know, like warnings about... Not following in David's footsteps. They may frighten us and uh, words of advice about how to raise your kids well. They might equip us. But only seeing Jesus on the tree. Dying for your sin. Dying for the failures as a mom or as a dad. Dying for the horrible things that you've done that, that are still having ripple effects in your life. Seeing that he died. Seeing that. That's the only thing that can break the cycle of guilt, that can relieve it, that can relieve the regret and give you hope. Give you hope even in the midst of painful circumstances that you caused yourself. That's why it's in the Bible. As a message ultimately of hope pray. Father, thank you for the message of hope that we enjoy in your word. It's sometimes so hard to see it, but it is always there. 
give us hope. People who are fallen and failing, living with consequences, thinking it's punishment, show us that it's discipline, that you are making us beautiful. You are not holding our sin against us. Do this, we pray in your son's name. Amen.